Once we come to God's Word, let's, let's pray together and ask Him to help us understand it and rightly apply it. Blessed You are, Lord, our great God. Blessed You are, eternal God, in times past and yet today. You have spoken in the past, and your people have been guided through all kinds of wildernesses and supported in all kinds of exiles and tribulations. Speak to us today in the midst of our own peculiar confusions. Speak to us through your law, God. Give us a sense of order and direction in it. And speak to us through your gospel. And transform us by your grace. And renew us in its hope. For yours is the future even more than the past. And we trust you for all of it. If you have your Bible, I would invite you to turn with me in the book of Revelation, to Revelation chapter 13. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 13. Lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. No. We are not making our way through the forest on the yellow brick road on our way to Oz. No, rather, what we are dealing with is much more considered back in Kansas, the real world. In the book of Revelation, though what we encounter often resembles the fantastical world of Oz, we are in fact encountering the real world, but maybe we're encountering the real world in a way that we're not really used to seeing it. We are getting a deep look into the spiritual heart of the reality that in truth exists all around us every day. Uh, This is the world in which we are placed by God to live and move and have our being. And before we come to this text in Revelation chapter 13, I want us to look more closely um, at a few things that might help us by way of introduction um, on our way of examining things like lions and tigers and bears, or lions and bears and leopards and beasts and things such as we've read about already in the reading of the Word. I want to say something about the type of literature that we're dealing with, by way of reminder, we've mentioned this several times along the way, but it just keeps seeming to slip out the back of our minds, and so I want us to maybe um, beef that up a little bit and strengthen that so we understand what we're reading. Uh, I also want us to talk a little bit, just for a moment, about the use of symbols. There are many symbols in the book of Revelation, and we need to understand uh, something about them. 
We also need a little bit of help in our interpretation of those symbols. So we might call that, uh, we want to look at, say, something about hermeneutics, the way to interpret this particular kind of language in the Bible. And then something about the language itself that's used in this type of text. So those are four things I just want to kind of talk about briefly uh, by way of introduction. Something first about the genre of the literature. We have referred to this kind of literature before as apocalyptic literature. It is apocalyptic literature. What does that, what does that mean? Richard Bauckham says in his book on the theology of the book of Revelation this about apocalyptic literature. He says that John's work is apocalyptic because the way that it enables the readers to see their situation with prophetic insight into God's purpose. His way of doing this is by disclosing the content of a vision in which John is taken, as it were, out of this world in order to see it differently. And we could say that much like in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, the entirety of the book is a dream. And if you forget that the entirety of the book of Pilgrim's Progress is a dream, then you're going to really misunderstand a lot of the points along the journey. In like fashion, the entirety of the book of Revelation is an apocalyptic vision that John is given. He's not going, as it were, in and out of trances, in and out of a vision, into non-reality, back to reality. When he goes from heaven and earth, he is going from heaven and earth in the vision. It's all part of the vision. He is given insight into God's purpose by disclosing the content of a vision in which John is taken out of this world in order to see the world itself differently. And here John's work belongs to this apocalyptic tradition of visionary disclosure in which a seer or a prophet is taken in vision to God's throne room in heaven to learn the secrets of the divine purpose. John, and thereby his readers with him, and consequently you and I today participating in the hearing of the word and the preaching of the word, we are taken up into heaven in order to see the world from the heavenly perspective. We are given a glimpse behind the scenes of history so that he can see, or we can see, what is really going on in the events of time and the place in which we live. Without heaven's view of your life, your life doesn't make a lot of sense. We've said things like that over the months, but we need to keep being reminded. The second thing to say by way of introduction is, is about the use of symbols in the book. Revelation makes use of symbols, not for us to paint pictures, but in order to build ideas into our thinking. We often think of symbols in terms of a picture, um, a stop sign. All right, You think of the actual sign. You don't usually pull up to the stop sign and think about the abstract or the philosophical idea of stopping as opposed to not going. There is, you can do that. You'll probably drive right through the stop sign if you do that when you pull up there. You associate that sign with what? The act of stopping. Therefore, you stop. Donald Richardson, in a book that he wrote, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, an interpretation 
back in 1939, he said this, Symbolic writing does not paint pictures. It is not, now this is not my word, I would not have used this word, but he used it, and it's a good word, but it's not a word I'm used to using. The symbols here are not pictographic, but ideographic. You've got to really put your brain on to grasp that one. They're not pictographic. They're ideographic. They're not graphing or writing out pictures for us to think on. They are grafting, writing into our minds, what? Ideas. Ways to think. The skull and the crossbones on the bottle of medicine is a symbol of poison, not a picture. When you see that symbol on the, the bottle, you don't think of Jolly Roger, you know, or pirates, or even the skull and crossbones, you think what? Poison. It's, it's representative of, of something else. The fish, the lamb, the lion, they're all symbols of Christ, but never to be taken as pictures of him. Jesus isn't a lion, he isn't a fish, and he isn't a lamb. Although, Revelation pictures him as a lion and a lamb. In other words, the symbol is a code word and does not paint a picture. The, the book of Revelation just gets heavier and heavier and heavier with imagery like this, with symbolic imagery like this. And we're going to come to a lot of it today. This is why we're stopping to say a few things before we look at it. Let's say something else, though, about the way to interpret these kinds of symbols or the hermeneutics that we need for interpretation. Philip Ryken, in his book, How to Read the Bible as Literature, makes this statement. We need to ask of visionary literature in the Bible about a question or a question about a principle of interpretation of what, when you're reading the book of Revelation, be asking this in your mind, of what historical event or theological reality or event in salvation history does this passage seem to be a symbolic version? In other words, the symbols are all pointing you to a reality in the history of salvation that you need to grapple with and lay hold of. And what that does for you, when you read the book of Revelation, is it, or another book like it, like the book of Daniel, for example, the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament there, it helps you when you're reading about leopards and bears and lions, it helps you to be thinking about the gospel story that this is trying to hold before your eyes for you to see. Because if you read the book of Revelation and don't come out with it, They'll come out on the other end with, with a sweeter view of the gospel and a more precious view of Christ, then you've, you've lost the forest, if you will, for the trees. One final thing about the language that is used in this type of text, and Riken is helpful here again for us. He says, how do we know what a given image symbolizes? How do we know who the beast is? How do we know who the dragon is? How do we know who the false prophet is? How do we know what, why he looks like a leopard? Or why he looks like a bear? Why he has the mouth of a lion? 
How do we know what a given image symbolizes? He says this is perhaps the central problem in the interpretation of Revelation. And he says the best equipment is a wide acquaintance with literature as a whole, since literary symbolism is to a remarkable degree a conventional language. In other words, apocalyptic literature has, has its own type of speech. You might say you need an apocalyptic dictionary or an apocalyptic grammar or an apocalyptic vocabulary book to understand apocalyptic literature. And what's fascinating is when we go back into the book of Daniel, which we'll do a little bit today if we have time, we're going to find some parallels between Daniel and Revelation that help us understand Daniel, in a sense, can interpret for us some of the things in the book of Revelation. And Revelation, conversely, can interpret many of the things for us in the book of Daniel. So we're not left without an answer. Scripture in many ways is the best commentary on itself. And apocalyptic literature itself, especially that which is in the Bible, helps us understand other places in the Bible. And with some of those thoughts in our mind, uh, let us go back and let us read again from Revelation chapter 13. And let us begin there in verse 1. John says, I saw, remember, he is in a vision. He is having an apocalyptic type vision, a disclosure about true reality that is going to help him know how to minister to the churches that are around him. He's going to see symbols that stand for other gospel realities, things that are going to help him appreciate and understand the gospel. And he's going to hear things and see things that are things that as a Jewish man he would have been somewhat familiar with. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. And its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, and its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. They worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before in the foundation, excuse me, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. And here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Well, to make our way through this passage, we want to look at three different things. We want to look at the setting, we want to look at the site, and we want to look at the significance of the text. The setting, the site, and the significance. Uh, Much will probably be left out to get the bigger picture uh, and make it all the way through the passage. But let's look first at the setting of the passage. Now if you have 
uh, the King James or the New King James. Uh, this is where I, uh, I tipped my hat to Matt last week uh, and the King James or some of you have a New King James, you'll notice that the ESV starts verse 13, or chapter 13, verse 1, differently. The ESV says in 13.1, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. I think uh, the King James or the New King James have something like, And I stood on the sand of the sea and saw a beast rising out of the sea. Uh, probably the best translation of this, and what that does is that reaches back into chapter 12 in verse 17b for the ESV, or I think the, the King James, New King James, actually has a verse 18, does it not? Uh, John, you got a New King James? Does it actually have a verse 18 in chapter 12? Okay. Um, well, what, what happens here is the question of where do you break the chapters, all right? Originally, when the Bible was written, there were no chapters. There were no verse divisions. It was just a long paragraph, okay? And they had to find out where to break things. And the best place to break it is where the King James and New King James have done so. Because standing on the sand of the sea, but it's not I, it's not John standing on the side of the sea. It is he, it is the dragon who is standing on the side of the sea. And probably the best way to translate this little section is that he stood upon the sand of the sea and rising up out of the abyss or the sea, I saw a beast. And he stood upon the sand of the sea, rising up out of the abyss or the sea, and I saw a beast. There are several uses uh, in the Bible of this concept of the sea or the abyss uh, look over in chapter 17 of Revelation. Revelation chapter 17 in verse 1. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on the sea or the many waters and with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. You'll recall there is a sea of crystal before the throne of God in heaven above. That's, that's in heaven. But this is the sea that is on the earth. And it's out of the sea, out of the abyss of the things that are on the earth, that rise up everything that is wicked and opposed to God. We might even say here in Revelation 17, we see this great prostitute, this whore, who is sitting on the many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. She seems to represent worldly powers and forces that stand opposed to God and Christ and the church. Everything that rises out of the sea is that which is opposed to God. So again, it's a symbol. It's not meant that we would sit here and think about water, but it's meant to think about things that are opposed to to God. They are the things like the abyss, the things that contain Satan and his hordes and his forces. It's interesting if you think about the parable or the story where Jesus and the Gospels, the story where Jesus casts out the demons out of legion. Remember that? And, and they plead with him and they say, don't cast us into the what? Into the abyss. And so they, he's like, you know, Acting like, in a sense, that he's going to like accommodate their request. Oh, I'll do whatever you want. What do you want to do? Well, send us into the pigs. And so Jesus casts them out and sends them into the pigs, and the pigs do what? Run down the hill into the what? They're back in the abyss. They run down the hill into the sea, and they, 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 they die. They perish. It's, a, it's an interesting image 
of Christ casting them back where, where they belong. Where they belong. It's interesting to note that in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, listen to what it says about the new heaven and the new earth, and the first heaven and first earth have passed away, and the sea was no more. There's great hope in that. There's great... There, there's, again, if you just get lost on the symbol, all right, then you miss the point. The sea being no more is a statement to say that everything about God and the new heavens and the new earth and the church, everything that opposes the people of God in this world that rises up out of the sea will be what? Will be no more. It will be gone. The sea will be no more. Well, this leads us from the setting to what I've called here the site. Look back in Revelation chapter 13. Let us think about the sight of this beast who is rising out of the sea. A few things that we might think about regarding the appearance of the beast in verses 1 to 4. When he appears, it says that John sees that he has ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And then he said he saw the beast, it was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth, and the dragon gave it its power and its throne and great authority. And one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, for he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Seems interesting here, the imagery here, as the beast begins to appear, John recounts the things about the appearance of the beast as he probably saw them rising up out of the sea. Well, the first thing you'd see about a beast is his what? His horns. He sees his horns on the top, and there are ten horns. And then he sees his heads. There are seven heads, diadems on the horns, blasphemous names on the heads. And then he begins to see his body. He describes his body, his feet, his mouth. Here is this appearance of the beast. And interestingly, the the beast is the image, if you will, of the dragon. Go back to chapter 12. In verse 3, when a sign appears in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with what? Seven heads and ten horns. And here is a copycat image, if you will, of the dragon. Here is the beast with seven heads and ten horns. Horns. He is in many ways like a false Christ or like a false Messiah. One writer I read said that he gave uh, that the beast is the image of the invisible dragon. Now, what he's trying to bring out there is that the dragon portrays the father and the beast portrays the son. And we'll see that again more here in just a moment when we look at the wound that the beast has. So his appearance is the appearance of 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 an image. Of the very dragon. And notice, if you will, back in chapter 12, in verse 17, remember the dragon has been uh, the dragon has been thwarted. 
He has been trying to pursue the woman, and she has fled away with the wings of the eagle. Uh, he then tries to throw the, the, the flood of waters out after her, and he is thwarted there by the earth opening up and swallowing the flood. And then he's frustrated, and he's furious in verse 17 with the woman, and he goes off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So several things are said about the dragon there. One, he becomes furious. He is in a rage. He is is full of wrath and full of anger. He goes off to make war on the rest of the offspring of the woman, and he stands on the sand of the sea. He is furious. He is is running off to make war. And then we find him doing what? He stops running, and, and he stands. What he's doing at the sand of the seashore, it is as if he is summoning up from the sea itself his representative. And his representative will be the beast. The beast is the one he's going to give power to, and authority to, and a mouth to, and blasphemous words to. And that beast is going to be the vehicle or the means by which he wages war on the children of the woman. Again, think of the parallel. The father takes his son and sends his son to be the means by which he will redeem his people. The dragon takes the beast and sends the beast who will become the means by which he'll wage war on the woman and her offspring that he was furious with. The woman that the dragon wants to destroy, he sends the beast to do his work. The people that the Father wants to save, He sends His Son to do His work. There's this parallel, this this relationship of imagery between the Father and the Son and the dragon and the beast that needs to be kept in mind. Notice the attributes of the beast. As the beast appears and John takes a closer look at the beast, he says, I saw that the beast was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Now, if you and I are thinking symbolically like we might as you know, contemporary Americans, grew up in school drawing pictures and stuff, we might think this is a good place to pull out a piece of paper and some colors and draw a picture of a leopard with bare claws and a big lion's mouth. That would be a strange looking leopard, wouldn't it? All right, Leopards don't have big bare Feet. They don't have lion's mouths. Be kind of a, a, a deformed-looking leopard. All right, but again, it's biblical imagery. It's biblical symbolism, and it's trying to point to something in salvation history that will help us understand. Why don't you go back to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter seven? I won't have time to read all this here, but in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision of four beasts. He has a vision of four beasts in Daniel chapter 7. In verse 1 it says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his head as he lay on his bed. And then he wrote the dream down and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Verse 3. And four beasts came up out of what? Out of the sea. Different from one another. The first was like a lion. Go down to verse 5. Another beast, the second one like a bear. 
Verse 6, another, after this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard. Down in verse 7, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had iron teeth. The mouth of a lion. It had great iron teeth that devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. The feet of a bear. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one before which the first three horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, this horn and eyes like a man and mouth speaking great things. It spoke blasphemous things. Now, what we're doing here, what's happening in the book of Revelation is John is making, in many ways, a composite picture of all of these beasts that Daniel sees in his vision. The vision of a lion. The vision of a bear. The vision of a leopard. The vision of a fourth beast that is terrifying, dreadful, strong, teeth of iron, feet that stomp things out, and it has a mouth that speaks blasphemous, wicked things. Notice what else it does. Down in chapter 7. Verse 17. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Now, if we go back in the book of Daniel and find an overlapping vision in Daniel chapter 2, what we'll find is a vision of a a statue uh, that is made. Uh, The statue in Revelation chapter 2 is also a picture of kingdoms. This this lion, this bear, this leopard, this beast, what this is representative of in the book of Daniel, this vision he has, he interprets for us as four great kings or four great kingdoms moving throughout the history of the world. And if we go back to Daniel chapter 2, we have the vision of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has a vision of a giant statue with a head made of gold and a chest made of silver and thighs or made of bronze, legs made of iron, feet made of iron mixed with clay. And these also represent these four great kings or four great kingdoms throughout the history of the world. Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold. He was the one who was the ruler of Babylon. This would correspond to the king or the kingdom represented by the lion. That that as you move down from the head of gold to the, to the chest of silver, this represents the king, kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, which are represented by the king or the image of the bear. Moving forward in time, Babylon is conquered by the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and Persians are conquered by the Greeks. And we come to belly or thighs of bronze. We move forward to that iron kingdom, the kingdom of iron, the legs made of iron. But again, remember it had feet made of iron and clay, which made it brittle. It would collapse. This was the kingdom of Rome. I go back to Daniel 2 for a minute. You almost need time to like read four or five different chapters of the Bible in this kind of a thing uh, to keep it all straight. But in Daniel chapter 2, having talked about the, uh, uh, the... The image with the head in Daniel chapter 2 verse 32, the head of fine gold, the chest and arms of silver, the middle and thighs of bronze, the legs of iron, the feet partly of iron and clay. Notice down in verse 44. 
in the days of those kings. Okay? In the days of those kings. So in this, in this age in which kingdoms are coming and kingdoms are going, God is raising up kings. He is putting down kings. We have the, the kings like the kings of Babylon, the kings of the Medes and the Persians, the kings of the Greeks, the kings of Rome, the emperors of Rome. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven, now remember, in the image, excuse me, in the image that Daniel has, or that Nebuchadnezzar has, that statue is laid waste by a stone that flies out of heaven and crushes the statue. And this, uh, this is re- referenced down in uh, Daniel chapter 2, uh, verse 34. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. Then the iron and the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. You ever had a dream that when you woke up in the morning, you were just like very disturbed? (laughs) It was just a troubling dream. Well, Nebuchadnezzar has a troubling dream. And this is his dream. And he has no idea what it means. And he's tried to force all of his guys to give the dream and give the interpretation. And they can't. Only Daniel can give the the dream itself and the meaning of the dream. And notice in chapter 2, verse 44. Daniel 2, 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. This is the stone that was not cut by any human hand. He will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand. And that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, and the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. It's fascinating this week to read. uh, Just finished the Gospels. Read through John the dialogue between Jesus and Pilate. Remember that? And Pilate's trying to get Jesus to, you know, answer all of his questions, and, and he, he looks at Jesus, he's frustrated with Jesus, Jesus isn't saying anything, and he's like, don't you know? Don't you know that I have the power to release you or to kill you? And Jesus says what? You have no power. You have no power. You little piece of putescence. You're nothing. You have no power. Except what God gave to you. And then there's that dialogue where he says things like, well, so you are king? And then Jesus answers the way Jesus often answers things like, you say that I'm a king. Like, that's a straight answer. You say that I'm a king. What does he mean? Yes, I'm a king. You're very perceptive to know that I'm a king. Shouldn't you be the one bowing at this moment? But no. He just continues to pontificate about his power and his authority. And he's, he's, he's confused. If you're a king, then why are your subjects letting all this happen? And Jesus then says to him, My kingdom is what? Not of this world. My kingdom is like a rock that is flown into the presence of this world, cut by no human hand, and you don't know it yet, but my kingdom has come, and it has crushed and is crushing all the kingdoms of this world into nothingness. 
love that scene when Pilate's wife comes out. I had a dream last night. Another person had a dream. Have nothing to do with this man. And Pilate does all he can quickly to wash his hands in a Macbeth-type manner, wanting to get the blood off of them, but knowing that what? He's guilty. He's guilty. And he has been caught by the king of kings and the lord of lords. The kingdom of the world, the kingdoms of the world have been, in fact, in the coming of Christ, they have been destroyed. And there are little kings all over the history of the world continuing to run around and act like they actually have power. Back in the book of Revelation, this beast has a type of authority given to him. The dragon gave his power and his throne and his authority to the beast. And it's interesting to note what it is that wins the approval of the people for this beast. What is it that moves the people to recognize the beast as one having authority? Look at what happens in verse 3. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. A wound that led to death. But the wound had been what? Healed and the whole earth marveled. What's happened here? This is like a, a replication of the resurrection. The beast supposedly had been destroyed but now has come back to life, and the people are amazed. And they marvel as they follow the beast. And notice what they ascribe to him. Worship. And they worship the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? They see the beast as being somehow immortal and invincible, and worthy of worship. That is the appearance of the beast that comes to John. But notice something second in this sight or this vision of the beast. Notice not just the appearance of the beast. Notice the activity of the beast in verses 5 through 8 very quickly. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 40 Two months. Here we're back to this time frame of the three and a half years, the 42 months, and the 1260 days, all picturing this time period between the first and second coming of Christ when the church is in the wilderness suffering at the hands of the enemy but being preserved by the seal of God. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. I want you to think about this activity of the beast. There are several things that are mentioned in this text as having been given to the beast. Notice in verse 5, the beast is given a mouth. He is given a mouth to utter blasphemous things and to make haughty statements. He is full of pride and he is full of blasphemy. 
He embodies in many ways the spirit of the world that is filled with pomp and filled with arrogance and filled with blasphemous things to say about and to God. He has given a mouth effectively to make proclamations, proclamations that are false. Notice secondly, in verse 5, he is given authority. He is allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. He is given this authority this, to, 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 to effectively exercise the power of the dragon during this time of the woman being in the wilderness. Again, he is exercising this power because he is the one that is being appointed by the dragon himself from back in chapter 12, verse 17, to make war on the rest of her offspring. The beast is thirdly, he is allowed to make war. Look down in verse 7. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And then finally, it says authority is given to him to ascribe worship from the peoples of the nations. Authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will what? They will worship him. So the activity of the beast centers around things about his mouth, about what he says, about what he teaches, about what he proclaims. It, it centers around the exercise of power and authority. It centers around this idea of making war on people to whom he is, against whom he is opposed. And it, and it centers around this idea of him having authority to solicit worship from the nations of the peoples. Now here's the question. Why? All right. Why are we told this, and why are we told this now? I want us to look at the last two verses. Again, there, there's so much more that can be said in this passage, but I want us to, to try to draw this somewhat to a point of application here in the last couple of verses of our text. What is the significance of this kind of story? Why has John had this vision of Number one, a dragon, but then a beast that the dragon summons up out of the sea to be his image bearer or his representative, and to whom the dragon gives authority to, uh, to make proclamations, haughty proclamations with his mouth, to summon the worship of the nations. Why, are, why is the church, if you will, told these kinds of things? Notice what it says in verse 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. In other words, what's just been said in verses 1 to 8 of the chapter is something that John is told by the angel who's just conveying the message of Christ. He's told by the angel the church needs to hear these kinds of things. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Let me mention three things in this passage by way of the significance I find in the text. The first is in verse 9. There is a call to the church to listen. There's a call to the church to listen. All right? when, when you Have you ever given an instruction to your child that you didn't have their attention, and you gave the instruction anyway, and then they didn't what? They didn't listen. 
and they didn't hear, and they didn't obey. All right? Now, they might not have obeyed anyway, but at least you ought to, as a parent, get what? Get their attention if you're going to say something that's really important. So sometimes you'll even say, I want you to really listen. Or maybe you'll say something like, I want the earbuds out of your ear at this moment while I'm talking to you. You know, um, or I, I want you to look right at me. You know, kids have an amazing way of of looking at something else when you're talking to them. Sometimes I'll do that at the house. I'll I'll, I'll stand in one room and I'll watch Janice talking to the kids, and she might do it with me. All right, and she's talking to the kids, and they're looking over here, or they're actually doing something over here. And I'm thinking in my mind while I watch that, nobody is hearing what anything. So I might even interject, you know, so-and-so. Whose name shall I mention? I don't know. There's so many to pick from. Um, You need to what? You need to stop what you're doing and look at your mother while she is talking to you. At least, at least give the appearance that you're trying to pay attention. All right? There is a call here for the church to listen. I say it's a call to the church, not just because it's in the Bible, and the Bible is God's word to the church. I say it's a call to the church because of the phrase itself, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Where have you heard that before in the book of Revelation? You've heard it seven times in chapter 2 and 3. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is a message from God through Christ to the angel, to John, to the churches, written down for us, it is a call to listen. It is a message to the churches. So whether you see immediate significance or not in this kind of a text, you need to know that you're called to listen to it. A child may not always think that what the parent is going to say amounts to you know the proverbial hill of beans. But they're called to what? They're called to listen. They're called to listen. They're called to give attention. Husbands, when your wife is saying something to you, you know, put down what you're doing. Wives, when your husband's trying to talk to you or someone else, put down what you're doing. Give attention. Someone's trying to communicate with you. It says here, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. There's something else here to consider. There are some that don't have what? There are some that don't have ears. This is a message that is particularly and peculiarly for the church. Something's being said here to the church that's not being said to the world. Jesus would say this often in the Gospels. He would say, he who has an ear, let him what? Let him hear. And he was speaking to those who have been given spiritual perception, the ability to perceive spiritual truth. He who has an ear, let him hear. Now, keep in mind, and and, and don't miss this, this does not excuse the one who doesn't have an ear from hearing. Now you think, that doesn't make any sense at all. The one who doesn't have an ear to hear is still responsible for what is said. Because he is responsible for his own lack of ears. He's responsible 
for his lack of hearing. Why can't he hear? Well, you might say, well, he can't hear because he has no ears. But why does he have no ears? It's a picture of being dead to the Word of God. It's a picture of being dead to the things of God. This goes back to the broader picture in all the Bible of the relationship that all people have to God in Adam. In Adam, there is a spiritual deafness that all men have to the things of God. They do not understand the things of God. They cannot perceive the things of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, they're considered what? Natural men. They are, in the book of Revelation, called those who dwell on the earth. They are, if you will, those sons of Adam. They are, they are human, yes, but they share that common, common plague of all humanists of being fallen. Fallen where? Fallen in Adam. And Adam, in the garden, born and created in that state of innocency, had the ability to hear. Adam had ears. If you'll recall, back in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, when Adam is made, Adam has the ability to hear and commune with and understand and receive the commands of God. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that all people, what? All people died. We might... to. to Go over there, Romans chapter 5 for a moment. Let's make a, a, a connection here between these two texts. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. We covered this, I think, did we not last week in our study of the confession on uh, Sunday afternoon? Therefore, just as sin, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death... The consequence of breaking the covenant of works in the Garden of Eden and Adam eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and even transgressing and sinning against that law that was written in the moral fabric of his constitution. He knew right from wrong. He sinned when he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and he died on that day. But it says in the Bible that death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. All sinned when? All sinned. When Adam sinned. They sin by way of representation. Adam is that head of the human race. And because of Adam and his act and his rebellion against God. All the human race fell in Adam. Now there is a, there is a, there is a cry in the fallen human heart. When it hears that it says not what? Not fair. It, 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 it rises up in the heart of every person. Probably every person in this room has said it, is saying it, will say it. All right? Now, we can cut to the chase on this and we can just say, well, that's the way it is. <laughs> All right? There's a lot of things your kids look at you and they say, well, that's just not fair. Well, you just say, that's what? That's the way it is. All right? Um, there is a sense of which Paul adopts that kind of argument in Romans chapter 9 when he says things like, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? I'm, I'm what? I'm, I'm no one. This is the way God has put it together. In fact, it's the way our own country works. Just by way of an example, we elect a representative form of government. You know, we talk about America having a democracy. It's not just a pure democracy. It's a representative form of government. We elect representatives, and those representatives go on what? And they vote for us. And sometimes they vote the way we want them to, and a lot of times they vote the way we don't want them to, and we say what? Not fair! Too bad you live where? In America. That's, that's where we live. 
All right? So there's a lot of reasons why we can well up and not like a representative form, but this is the way God has designed it to be best for His glory and best for our good. But there's, a, there's another thing to think on there. Because sometimes when we're saying not fair, what we're really saying is, if I'd had it my way, I would have done it a different way. And this is how I would have done it. I would have let everybody have their own garden experience. I would have let everybody be Adam. And be created into their own world of innocence. And be created into their own world of opportunity. And be given their own ears. And then everybody could have had their own chance to what? Do it right. Well, there is a subtle form. Actually, it's not even very subtle. It's rather bold and out front form of arrogance there. Because we're all saying we would have done what? We would have done better than Adam. Really? Created absolutely innocent? Given everything we needed to obey? Given all the beauty of the garden? Would we really have done different? Somehow in your daily experience every day, you open up the fridge and you open up the cabinet and you open up the pantry and you look at all the wonderful things that are there to eat, all the fruits, all the vegetables, all the things, and somehow your hand still finds its way to the cookie jar. And there you are. A little tongue-in-cheek there. We're all going to do what? We all would have done the same thing. There's a call to listen. There's a call to hear. To the one who has ears, he is called to listen. To the one who doesn't have ears, he's still accountable for the message that he is going to miss. There's a second thing here I want us to see, and that is a call to understand. There's a call to understand. Notice what it says. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. There is a message here. There are at least a few things being said. One, something we need to understand about the inescapability of suffering. If anyone is to be taken captive, well, he might get out, but he'll probably go to captivity. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, he might be able to escape, but he'll probably be slain. No. If anyone is to be taken captive, to what? He'll be taken captive. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, he'll be what? He'll be slain with the sword. Some, as persecution wells up in the world against Christ and against the people of Christ, the church, some will be taken captive, some will be killed by the sword, all will face what the writer of Hebrews refers to as the being slaughtered all day long. There will be suffering in the world that will increase as the days draw to a close. Human suffering... Suffering as the people of God is inescapable. I love the book of First Peter. I was talking to Paul last week about Peter a little bit because he's fixing to start preaching uh, through First Peter at the nursing home. And First Peter is a book that deals much with human suffering. And one of the things that it deals with is the inescapability of suffering. Everybody what? Everybody suffers, believers and unbelievers. He says, look, make sure though you suffer as a what? Suffer as a believer. Suffer as a believer. It is an inescapable type of suffering. Submit yourself under the hand of God. In this world, there will be tribulation. There will be difficulty. Notice something, though, about the suffering that comes. Remember the beast? 
He was given a mouth. He was allowed to exercise authority. He was allowed to make war. And he was given authority to solicit worship. Where did he get all that stuff? Who gives the beast the right to utter blasphemous words? Now think on this. Who gives the beast the ability to exercise authority? Who allows the beast the privilege, if you will, that seat of making war? Who gives the beast the opportunity to solicit the worship of the nations? Well, in the text here we have the dragon giving his power to the beast. Then later on, it says that the uh, I believe that's the only time it actually says the dragon gave it to him. Uh, there in verse 2, the dragon gave his power and his throne and his authority. Um, no, verse 4, I'm sorry. They worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast. But then in verse 5, it simply says the beast was given a mouth. And then, down in verse 7, he was allowed to make war. Where does he get this? Well, the closest one in proximity to the beast is the dragon. But there's something bigger going on here. I want you to look over in Revelation chapter 17. This is something you don't get to for several chapters. There's something standing behind, if we read in Revelation chapter 17, verse 15, the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. Not those that represent the elect that love God, but those peoples and multitudes and nations and languages that are opposed to God. The ten horns that you saw, they are the beast and will hate the prostitute, and they will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purposes by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled and the woman you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Who is standing behind and over all of this, this wicked distribution of power, this, uh, this, this display of, of evil in the world? Who stands over all of this is God. God has purposes to fulfill in salvation history that we may not understand. But God has put this thing into their hearts to carry out His purpose. We don't have time to follow this throughout the entirety of the Bible. The confession sums it up in brief that God has decreed what? All things whatsoever comes to pass. Or Ephesians chapter 1 says that God is working out all things after the counsel of His will. Even things like the giving of a mouth to the beast to utter blasphemy, the allowance of the beast to exercise authority, the allowance of the beast to execute persecution, the allowance of the giving of the beast authority to ex extract praise from the nations. God has his purposes, as Cooper said in his book, or his hymn, his purposes will ripen, what? Fast. We may not understand all the things that God has to do, but he will make all things plain. One, one other thing to mention here in this call to understand. Suffering is escapable. The purpose of God 
is his own secret purpose, and he will one day make all things plain. But there's something we need to see here, that even though all these things happen to the saints, notice verse 10, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. He says, look, if, if, if you're going to be taken captive, then you will be. If you're going to be killed, then you will be. You might think, well, then why endure? Because there's something worse than prison, and there's something worse than death. There's something worse than prison. There's something worse than death. The true child of God here finds himself, even though he may be taken captive in this world, he's still what? He's still safe. The true child of God finds that even though he may be slain in this world with a sword and face death, he's still what? He's still safe. There's something worse than captivity. There's something worse than death. It's falling into the hands of a living God who's full of wrath. So here is one final thing, a call to listen, a call to understand. It's a call to endure. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. And we might say in this calling of of endurance, there's also a subtle call of warning to the one who is not a saint. But let's think first, let's think about these two things will be done. The call to endure to the saints. Here is the call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Where? Where's the call? <laughs> I think verse 10 is the call. I think verse 10 is the call that's going out to the saints to endure. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. That's a call to the saints to hold on. Embrace captivity willingly, embrace the sword willingly, endure through those things, because if you do that, your soul will be delivered fully in the end. There is a call to the saints to endure. What is it that will ensure the endurance of the saints? Go back up to verse 8. To verse 8. Verse 8 says... That now let's back up to verse seven. Also, it was allowed. This is it was allowed the beast to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority has been given over, and given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everybody, all across the globe, throughout all of history, from every tribe, people, language, and nation, is going to be doing what? They're going to be worshiping the beast. Except, listen, except everyone whose name, or that is everyone whose name that has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. It's stated in the negative. Let's say it in the positive. Everyone whose name that is written in the book of the Lamb, what? Will not worship the beast. The doctrine of endurance is rooted Friends, in the doctrine of electing grace. This is where the doctrine of election 
has an intense and very bottom line kind of practicality to it. What is it that's going to ensure that the saint endures through captivity and doesn't sell Christ? What is it that's going to, going to keep the saint from selling out to the sword? His personal resolve. What is it that's going to take you and, and keep you enduring the struggle of the warfare that you face with the beast. When I, when I was coming in this morning, I, I, Jeff came in and Angie a few minutes after me and the boys did. And I was thinking, you know, I, I'm really hoping somebody doesn't ask me, how you doing right now? I was throwing chairs around. I was trying to do different stuff or whatever. And I thought, well, if, if I had asked that question by somebody, what, what am I going to say? Well, I'm just battling one more day with the beast. <laughs> I sent a text uh, this morning uh, to Venus. She emailed or texted me. Um, Paul was trying to come today. He was hoping he was going to be well. I talked to him last night on the phone. She said he took some medicine about 2 o'clock. He was wiped out. They're coughing. They have fevers. And you're all thinking, I'm glad he's not here. That's good. Just keep it with you. That's fine. Um, we'll have the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace without you being here. It's okay. Um, and, and, and uh, I, I sent a text back to her, and I, and I said, you know, we'll miss you guys. It's all part of doing battle with the beast. And um, that's what it is. Every day, every day we're doing battle with the beast. What is it that's going to keep you in your captivity from, from, from selling out? Keep you in the sword from selling out. Chapter 2 and paragraphs... Chapter 17, paragraph 2 in our confession, says this about perseverance. And I think it sums it up very well. This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will. It's not about your strength. But rather, it depends upon the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and union with Him, the oath of God, the abiding of His Spirit, the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace, from all which ariseth also the certainty and infallibility thereof. What makes your endurance certain and infallible? Listen, it is the immutability of God's decree of election. And that comes not from some kind of arbitrary choice where God closed His eyes and said, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, I'll take this one, I won't take this one. No. Election flows from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father for you. Which, which, which rests upon the efficacy. Listen, five things here. The merit and intercession of Jesus. Our union with Him. Number two, the oath of God. Three, the abiding of His Spirit. Number four, the seed of God within them. And five, the nature of the covenant of grace. From all those things, the merit and intercession of Jesus and our union with Him, the oath of God, the abiding of His Spirit, the seed of God within us, and the nature of the covenant of grace. From all those things, rise up the certainty and infallibility of our perseverance. God's elective mercy is no small doctrine that should lead us to, one, disregard it and not think about it. 
Nor, beloved, listen, nor should we despise it as if it doesn't, as if it's something bad. Because, friend, apart from the elective mercy of God, you'd cave in captivity. And you'd sell your soul rather than go under the sword. And you'd perish. It's not to be disregarded and put on some kind of shelf where that's just a hard doctrine that doesn't matter. No, it's a sweet doctrine that deeply matters to your endurance every day. Nor is it to be despised as something bad. Satan, Satan and the beast lie to the church and telling the church it's something to be disregarded and it's something to be despised. And don't believe that lie. And you may sit here and you may think, well, you know, I must be one of those that doesn't have ears. I'm just not one of those elect. I don't know that. (laughs) Remember the old story of Spurgeon? I love that one. You know, people got after Spurgeon because he preached the whole gospel to the whole earth, <laughs> to the whole man, to everybody. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't reserve the gospel just for the elect. And Spurgeon was like, you know, what do you want me to do? Go around and, you know, this was back in the days of coattails. You know, we don't have coattails today. So you want me to just lift up their coattail and see if they've got an E stamped on their back? So I just talked to them. He said, no, we preach the whole gospel to the whole world. Because I don't know who's elect and who's not. And you know what? Neither do you. People who sit around and argue about their election and say, I'm not going to repent and I'm not going to believe in the gospel because I'm just not elect. Joseph Aline, in his book, Alarm to the Unconverted, says this, and let's see if we can end here. He says, friend, listen, you begin at the wrong end if you first dispute about your election. He says, prove your conversion and then never doubt your election. If you cannot yet prove your conversion, then set apart at present, then set upon at present a thorough turning. Whatever God's purposes be, which are secret, I am sure His promises are plain. How desperately do rebels argue. (laughs) If I am elected, people say, well, I'll be saved and do what I will. If not, I'll be damned and do what I can. Doesn't matter what I do. Perverse sinner, Aline says. Will you begin where you should end? Is not the word before you? What saith the word? Repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. If you mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Believe and be saved. Acts 3.19, Romans 8.13, and Acts 16.31. What can be plainer? Do not stand still arguing and disputing your election. But be quick about repenting and believing. Cry to God for converting grace. Revealed things belong to you, and these busy yourself. It is just as well one said that they who will not feed on the plain food of the word should be choked with the bones. Whatever God's purposes may be, I am sure His promises are true. Whatever the decrees of heaven may be, I am sure that if I repent and believe, I shall be saved. Did you hear that? Did you listen to that? 
Whatever the decrees of heaven may be, I am sure that if I repent and believe, I shall be saved. And that if I do not repent, I shall be damned. Is not this plain ground for you? And will you run upon the rocks? Believer, take the doctrine of God's elective grace that wrote your name down from the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book of life as a precious thing. Because it is what will keep you to the very end. An unbeliever, argue not about God's elective mercy. Yours is to repent and believe in the gospel. That's your business. Because the promise for you is that the one who repents and believes in the gospel will be saved.